If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 219 of the Leading Learning Podcast. For this episode, we're doing a slight revamp and replay of one of the most popular interviews from our past episodes. And this was a discussion Salisa had with Kathy Moore. For many of our listeners, Kathy will need no introduction. She is well known across the learning world as a writer, speaker, and training designer who is out to save the world from boring instruction. We're going to help her save the world one podcast listener at a time, but before we do that, we want to acknowledge our sponsor for this quarter. Community Brands provides a suite of cloud-based software for organizations to engage and grow relationships with the individuals they serve, including association management software, learning management software, job board software, and event management software. Community Brands' award-winning crowd wisdom learning platform is among the world's best LMSs for corporate extended enterprise and is a leading LMS for association-driven professional education programs. Award-winning Freestone, Community Brands' live event learning platform, is a leading platform for live learning event capture, webinars, webcasts, and on-demand streaming. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. As a resource for this episode, we want to point you to the collection of resources Kathy Moore has on her site for what she calls action mapping. You'll be hearing more about action mapping in the interview, but the high level is that it's a method Kathy created to help you analyze a performance problem and design solutions that work. This is really valuable stuff to have handy when your learning business launches into creating new offerings, and you can get to it simply by visiting the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 219. Now, Salisa, you and I have both been following Kathy's writing for many years now, and she often comes up in conversations that we have with folks in the leading learning world. But this is a first chance to actually talk with her uh, in person, or at least uh, by audio, I guess. Uh, So can you give us a preview of what the conversation was like? Well, as you mentioned, we definitely talked about action mapping, what it is and how you can use it. We also got into measurement and evaluation, those uh, topics that are perennially important and perennially difficult to figure out the best way to look at the impact of learning. Um, And we talked a lot about scenarios as well, because those um, often figure into developing um, training and and learning offerings that are going to be as um, real and relatable to the real world experience of our learners as possible. And I will say too, that I think Kathy has one of um, my favorite answers so far to what's been one of her most significant learning experiences since leaving um, kind of official uh, uh, college education. I really liked what she had to say there. Well, I haven't heard that answer yet. I'm looking forward to hearing it. And I know that Kathy just always just has very useful, very actionable, very valuable things to say. And I know that this interview is going to be no exception to that. So without further ado, let's roll the interview with Kathy Moore. Hello out there, I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I'm very excited to be talking with Kathy Moore. 
Kathy is an internationally recognized training designer dedicated to, in her words, saving the world from boring instruction. She's also a speaker and an author. She writes a fantastic blog with a wealth of tools and tips and inspiration. She's written the book Map It, the hands-on guide to strategic training design. And last but not least, she's the creator of the action mapping model of training design, which is the focus of her book, Map It. Kathy, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you for having me. And so uh, to start us off, I want to give you the chance to to add to that brief introduction um, I just gave. What else would you like us to know about yourself and your work? I started out in K-12 e-learning in the U.S. and then switched into designing custom courses for the corporate world. And now I help instructional designers improve their skills, focusing on the business and nonprofit world. Well, great. And so I know that, uh, you know, I mentioned it in the introduction that that action mapping is one of the things that you're really well known for. And and I'm hoping that for those who might not be familiar with the model, if you could just give us a kind of a brief overview or explanation of it to start off. Very briefly, it is a model that helps us avoid doing information dumps Mm -hmm. and create more activity-centered training. So it starts with the question, what measurable improvement do we want to see in the organization as a result of this training? So in the case of an association, for example, it would be what measurable improvement do our learners want to see in the performance of their organization or in their personal lives, whatever we're addressing. And When we we start with that, we then list what it is that people need to actually do on the job to achieve this change. So we're avoiding jumping immediately to what they need to know, and instead we're listing what do they need to do and asking what makes it hard to do. Maybe they just need some additional resources. Maybe they just need a handy reference. Maybe they don't need training. But for some of the things, if they do need training, such as practicing doing the thing in a safe place, then we design practice activities, not information presentations, but practice activities. And in those activities, we link or provide optionally the information that they might need. And then the result is some very activity-focused experience, and the learners have the freedom to pull as much information as they need rather than everybody having to sit through the same information presentation. Well, I know one of the things that, that you've um, said is, you know, it's not a presentation occasionally interrupted by an activity. This really is where the activities are the focus. Exactly. And, and so, you know, the, the way that you lay out the action mapping model really strikes me as hard to argue with. It just makes a lot of sense. You know, training may not always be the answer, but when it is um, really focusing on kind of those real world um, uh, activities and examples and allowing learners to to um, to draw on information as they need it to try and accomplish a goal that's hopefully mirrors as closely as possible what they have to deal with um, at work. I, you know, all that said, again, it makes complete sense to me, um, but it also seems like there's room for growth in, in applying the model. Um, so, you know, why aren't action mapping and, and practice activities more the norm? Is it just kind of a, a lack of, uh, of knowledge that, that we just have to get the word out there more? Or, or what other barriers do you see to adoption? I think we have sort of a cultural issue and I rant about it for an entire chapter of my book, and that is that 
education, as most of us experience it, is delivery of information and then testing to see if that information has survived in the memory. And so a lot of people think that training is teaching and therefore training should be delivery of information followed by a knowledge check. And I think also in the world of professional continuing education, that's really entrenched because we are focusing on certificates or hours of pe- that people spend mm. in class rather than what can they do. So it's a mindset shift and it's a scary mindset shift because we're so familiar with the information delivery and testing model. And so how can we begin that sort of that cultural um, shift? I mean, do you have some uh, tips for in terms of how to begin to say, you know, this is what we should be doing rather than the kind of information focused uh, approach or the time based approach to fulfilling um, specific requirements? It's actually easier for in the corporate world for an internal training um, project because we can say, look at this, we want to improve sales X percent. And so we're going to have these practice activities in which our salespeople develop their skills and look, sales have improved. So we can say, look, the practice activities worked. In the association or sort of certification world, it's really, it's, it's a bigger risk because the market is buying you know, paying for CEUs, paying for these credits. And so I would see it myself, if I were in that sector, as a differentiator. Everybody else is designing materials that present information and have you regurgitated on a test. However, we design these realistic practice activities that have you actually practice doing the thing. And maybe it's project-based and you submit a project for your credit or the result is I can do this thing or look at this thing I created. Well, yeah, that's great. Uh, and I like that idea of it being this differentiator. And so then it becomes part of not only how you're delivering the the training uh, opportunity, but it becomes this marketing advantage, this, this thing that you can um, use to help entice and, and to stand out uh, among the mm-hmm. other options. And, and so, you know, I think you've already been addressing it some, but, um, you know, I'm just thinking that most of our listeners uh, on the Leading Learning Podcast, they, they often don't have that direct access to their learners, you know, as the, the sort of corporate training departments do, where they can kind of, you know, if needed, uh, shadow people on their jobs or, you know, have really direct um, access to those learners and perhaps their supervisors and, and bosses. So, you know, other advice or even perhaps cautions that that you might have for um, folks who are uh, not dealing with corporate training but are dealing with, you know, educating adults in that professional development, continuing education, lifelong learning space, what advice would you have for them when thinking about how they might apply the the, uh, action mapping model? This is a tough thing. Um, The, a couple of things I would suggest is to view the material or view the project or the need, the market need, from the perspective of the learner and not from, hey, somebody has this idea to present this or our competitors are presenting a course on whatever. What do the members need? And I think you have a blog post pointing out that you can't just survey them. It's an idea, but if you just survey them and ask them what they want, there can be a a gap between Mm. what they say they want and what they actually buy. So there is the concept of the minimum viable product, which you guys also have mentioned, which I'm a big fan of, which is to develop a handful of activities on this topic that you think is useful for them and see how well they sell, see how well they're received. The cool thing about doing this activity-based 
approach is that you can create just a handful and sell them as a little package of activities. It doesn't have to be this full-blown course with a huge structure and a final assessment. You can test with uh, with a few activities. So one, one thing would be, okay, view it from this, get a sense of the market need. What do they want? Make sure that your subject matter expert has recently or is currently doing the job that this is supposed to help people do, and ideally have more than one subject matter expert that can answer the question, what do they need to do? And very importantly, what makes it hard? Because if you understand a little bit more what are the pressures on the job that are making it hard to do this thing, you can create realistic practice activities that not only have them practice applying knowledge, but also have them practice the more tricky stuff like responding to um, a customer, responding to a client with a complex situation, because we can boil things down into bullet points on what you should or shouldn't do and deliver that on one slide, have a test and be done. But that does not necessarily change what anybody can do on the job. They need to practice it in, for example, a branching scenario, which is a practice in a safe place. So I've lost my point, but the, the main point is to view it from the perspective of the learners. Make sure your SMEs understand the challenges that the learners face. Consider producing a minimum viable product of a handful of activities that help people practice this thing. Test them on the market or on some learners and go from there. Well, I, I really like what you're saying because I do think that this is a, is a way to, as you were saying, this involves a, or it might involve a culture shift, this, this type of approach to learning. And so this idea of the minimum viable product, um, because you can begin to build some, um, some data around whether this is resonating with the learners, um, you can begin to, to prove it out without having to invest um, a lot of, of time and money necessarily. So I think that's great advice. Um, you know, measurement and evaluation, these are areas that we often um, hear about uh, with our the folks that we interact with who are in the business of lifelong learning because they can be tough areas to tackle. You know, it can be easy to measure the insignificant dimensions, the sort of typical smile sheet, level one type reactions, um, and it can be all too easy to neglect um, the impact of learning. But I'm thinking since action mapping ties any learning or training intervention really tightly to results, I'm thinking that it would be really helpful in measurement and evaluation of those learning interventions. And so I would just love to get your thoughts on how best to measure and evaluate the impact of, of learning. Again, it's easier in a sort of sealed corporate world than it is in, in the association world because a corporation doing an internal learning project can measure really directly the effect. Outside of that, <clears throat> I guess I would, again, because we're viewing it from the perspective of the market, of the learners, they want to improve something, they want to achieve something, we identify a measure that they might actually have access to and set that as our goal. And ideally, after the learning intervention, which is more than a course, something I did not mention is that when we are activity-based and we have these standalone activities that include the optional information that's needed to do them, we can space them out over time. Mm -hmm. So you're not just sitting through a 45-minute talking head video and then getting your credit. 
you are maybe doing practice activities once a day for two weeks, which is supported by research as a better way to learn. We learn more deeply through spaced practice. So we have a measurement that the learner cares about and ideally has access to. We have them go through this thing, however long it takes. At the end of the thing, they check that measurement again or they whatever. It's it's much harder in, in the association world, I think, because you don't have such direct control. But I would try to make it, put it within the learner's reach. And there could even be, before you take the materials, here's a practice activity, a rather complex one that sort of gives you a you are here score. How well do you manage this difficult client? And then you go through the practice activities and you do a different activity as an assessment. And it says, now you are here. So there's even a sort of a pre-test and post-test aspect that might work as well. Again, all based on what they can do, not what they know. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, I like that idea of, of the pre-test um, because it, that then helps uh, make the, the, the measure of, of, the, of the effectiveness of the learning a little more um, objective as opposed to being sort of the subjective, um, which, which can be the danger of if you're having to rely on the learner's sort of um, self-reporting around how they've gotten, uh, how they've approved or not. Yes. And that's especially true if you are like delivering credit based on improvement, because it's much harder to measure improvement in their skills on the job if you aren't there looking at them do the job. That's one reason why we keep punting to knowledge assessments, because that's so easy to score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so I also want to dig in a little bit to scenario design because, uh, you know, that's another area where you focused uh, your work because scenarios often are these um, really effective practice activities. Um, And so will you talk a little bit about how you approach scenario design and what common mistakes or missteps you see with scenario design? There's a lot. (laughs) I've been running a scenario design course-like event thing um, for several years now. It's a four-week experience in which people actually design scenarios during the length of the course or whatever we want to call it. So I see all the mistakes and some of the very common ones are not having a specific, clear, in-depth, super in-depth, highly contextual understanding of the task that people are supposed to practice. Mm. And again, that means you need to have subject matter experts that are there on the job and can report what makes it hard and what are the challenges people are facing. It also suggests that you create a prototype. I strongly advocate for this. You create a prototype and test it on actual learners to get their feedback on how realistic is it. But basically, you need to get not just, you know, what should they do and what's the right thing to do and what do they do wrong, but... What is the correct thing to do and why is it hard to do? What is the common mistake and why is it so tempting? What are the other common mistakes and what makes them tempting? What are the consequences to each of these options? Because we're not going to just say correct or incorrect. We're going to continue this story with the logical consequence of what they have chosen. And they're going to see for themselves whether that was a good choice or not. So there's a lot more um, detailed, specific contextual knowledge. And again, in the association world, we're tempted to create generic courses because we're trying to cover one thing for everyone. 
but we're much better off in scenario land to have a super specific example. And if that requires making up a fictional company or a fictional association or fictional whatever with a fictional challenge, that is a better result. That's a better approach than doing something abstract and generic because abstract and generic, the answers are always going to be really obvious. Mm. Well, that's an interesting point. Yeah, that that uh, the the more grounded you are in in reality and in a specific situation, the the more effective the scenarios are because they model the real world more. But it does, as you're saying, I mean, it does have kind of a, a an effect of limiting um, uh, perhaps the learners to which that really applies. But again, if you do that, then there's a potential for huge return because you really are mirroring um, their real world, real work situation. Exactly. Well, th- so you know, I'm I'm thinking as we're talking here that that this idea of, of scenario design that and this idea of being really specific to the learner situation. I mean, it, it makes me think of, of learner personas a little bit, and that perhaps that can be an effective tool in in, in figuring out which scenarios are going to fit by really having that sense of who are our learners and which learners are we serving with this particular scenario. Do you work with um, learner personas much? I do recommend using them, and I'm often I'm also very careful to distinguish between learner persona from the perspective of marketing, which mm. is we have a <laughs> we have a view of our learner as a person. We know we kind of know who they are, so we make up one learner that kind of represents them. You know, like we have learner Pat, whose husband works for the post office, and Pat works for um, a nonprofit that helps immigrants deal with. Uh, Taxes. I don't know. <laughs> so, so we have this particular person who we are imagining as a learner. Unfortunately, in the e-learning world, some vendors are using the term persona to re- represent avatar, talking animated guide to the content. So I'm really careful to say what we're talking about is from the marketing perspective of understanding the learner, making up a fictional learner. And so when we're doing our design, we could say, what would Pat think about this? How would Pat respond to this, Pat, our fictional learner? Well, I think that's a really interesting point that that uh, how the term is getting perhaps misused or being applied uh, in different ways. And so being really clear about what that that means and this this idea of it being this fictional representation uh, of uh, of a real learning segment, though, that you're seeking to serve and using that as sort of shorthand for thinking about what those uh, that particular set of your learners needs to be able to do. I was almost said what they need to know, but then I realized, no, it's what they need to be able to do. Um, well, great. You know, I, I'm thinking, you know, you've been involved, you know, as you, you said at the outset, you started out in K through 12. You've, you've sort of morphed over um, the years of your career so far. And so I'm just thinking, you know, you've had a, a relatively long um, perspective on, on learning and training, and you've ha- seen it from different angles. So I'd be interested to know what's on the horizon for the design of learning. Are there any big developments or changes that you think we'll see in learning design in the coming years or that you hope we'll see? <laughs> what I hope we'll see is less focus on delivering and testing information and more focus on designing practice activities, supporting practice in the real world, on-the-job mentoring, things like that. Um, I'm a technology skeptic. I know that people get all excited about different technologies as they show up. Uh, So I'd rather see an interest in creating practice drive the technology that we choose. 
And if we go from that perspective, there are some tools like um, Twine, which is a tool for writing interactive fiction, Twine, T-W-I-N-E. It's free. And it's a great way to write scenarios, either mini scenarios, branching scenarios, and even produce them and develop them and deliver them. And it's free. So I get excited about technology that helps us design practice activities. I'm not so excited about lots of trends <laughs> that we have. I'm, I'm pretty much immune to the trends. Well, I, I like that uh, point that uh, we need to the technology is, is, is a tool, uh, and we need to think about wh- what we're using tools for. And so the, the, the focus on practice activity sort of driving, driving that and the, uh, rather than getting too excited by the shiny new object on the horizon. <laughs> um, so next to last question, um, and, and this is one that we'd like to ask everyone who comes on the Leading Learning Podcast, I would like to hear about um, one of your experiences with um, learning, so something that you were you've been involved with since leaving your formal education. What's one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been a part of? In the early two thousands, I wanted to design a super energy efficient passive solar house, mm. and so I did. And that's a huge amount of learning. You have to learn how to choose the land, how to choose the orientation, what kind of trees do you want around the house, what's a good floor plan, how many, what percentage of window space facing south to thermal mass, like concrete floor do you need, what type of thermal mass, do you want gallons of water spaced out in your living room like they did in the 70s, or are you going to do something a little more attractive? There's a huge number, huge, huge number of decisions to make. And the way I learned it was getting on the internet and also checking out books from the library, but it was a project-based learning thing. I did not sign up for a course called Principles of (laughs) Passive Solar Design. I I thought, you know, here is my budget, here is my vision, how do I bring it about? And so everything, every time I looked for knowledge, (laughs) it was to solve a specific problem and to identify the step, the next step I needed to do. It was extremely interesting, and I did a very common thing, which is I had a website about my house. So as I was making these decisions, I recorded it in the website saying, okay, and I chose to have these many windows because that was the optimal ratio of south-facing glass to a poured concrete floor. And I chose to do this, that, and the other thing. I chose this type of wall system over the other because of this. And so I was recording my decisions, but also sharing why I decided them with strangers on the internet. I don't have that site anymore. It's out of date, so I took it down. But it was a, an excellent learning experience. Well, it seems like it uh, falls in that camp, too, of if you want to learn something, t- teach it. So you know, as you're sharing the, the rationale for your decisions, you're sort of trying to explain um, you know, why you made the choices that you did and, and and, and it feels like you're in that teaching role um, as the, at the same time when you're also learning it. And it also, it, it does open you up for critique. So if you put on your site, well, I chose this wall system over this other wall system, you get emails saying, oh, well, yeah. you should have chosen. You know. <laughs> so it's, a, it's another way to learn because you think, ah, maybe this person's right and I, I chose the wrong thing. Or, but it, it makes you make better decisions and prepare to defend your decisions. And that's another thing that we can do in our practice activities, like if we're having them practice a difficult conversation, they choose something to say. Rather than immediately continuing the story, we could say, why did you choose that? Mm. And have them defend their choice, which makes sure that they are, you know, 
engaged cognitively, they have a strategy and they're applying it and they're not just clicking stuff. <laughs> well, right. And, and, and sometimes too, I would think that, especially in some more complex um, decisions that you can often perhaps arrive at quote, you know, a, a wrong or a bad decision, but perhaps your rationale actually is pretty accurate, you know, and, and, and so it could just be a, a way of sort of shifting them and sort of saying, well, you know, you're, you're on the right path here with your rationale, but you know, sort of helping. And it also makes them improve their metacognitive skills. It makes them, reminds them to be aware of the strategy behind what they're choosing. They may be making choices based on intuition, for example, and we want to surface what is the strategy that you're applying here so that they can think about it more logically and, you know, analyze it more logically? Yeah, that's great. Great point. Metacognition there. Excellent. Well, so final question that I have for you just is if listeners would like to know more about your work, where should they go? They can go to my site, kathy-more.com. That's Kathy with a C, hyphen, more, M-O-O-R-E.com, where they will find everything, including... Uh, Wow, lots of resources on scenario design, some practice activities, examples of activities, uh, a page about the book, a link to buy the book, some information about upcoming courses, workshops, things like that. Yeah, and I will uh, second what you just said. There is a wealth of information there. It's a great resource, so I really encourage listeners to check it out. And Kathy, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. That wraps up our interview with Kathy Moore. To get show notes for this episode, just go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 219. When you check out the show notes, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That'll put you in the right place. And Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and review. And those ratings and reviews help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. And please be sure to check out our sponsor for this quarter. Visit Community Brands by going to leadinglearning.com slash communitybrands. Finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn at, you guessed it, leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on each of those channels. However you do it, please follow us and please help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.